I want to talk about um, Thich Nhat Hanh tonight, some reflections on him. As you all know, I'm sure he passed away last week on the 22nd. He died, and um, he was finally, I think, cremated yesterday. And there's been such an outpouring of affection for him in all of my social media feeds, all of uh, so many f people I know, uh, he is, I think you all know who he is, he's a Vietnamese Zen teacher, really, really wise, tremendous, tremendous individual, f has done a lot of great work and has, a, has had an impact on my life. I, I'm, I, don't, I don't practice in his tradition, I'm not in the Zen I don't practice Zen. I'm Theravada. Um, uh, early Buddhism is really where I land in my practice. But a lot of the things he talked about are so important and resonate so much with me that I want to talk about um, a couple of those, three of those. And I also listened to a talk by Gil Fransdahl the other morning. Gil is a teacher in Redwood City. He's the uh, founder of the um, Insight, Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City and Insight Retreat Center, which is in Santa Cruz. Uh, great, great, great place up there in Northern California. And Gil gave a talk, and I'll put the, I'll put the link in the chat. It's a beautiful talk about uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, and he offered some perspectives that, and some insights that I found really helpful and helped to really give me even a different view. He, he met um, Thich Nhat Hanh back in the 80s. Um, Gil had studied Zen. He was um, a Zen practitioner for many, many years before he moved to uh, uh, Theravada practice. And so um, I got a lot of perspective from him. So what I want to, where um, Thich Nhat Hanh impacted me the most, it was in his teachings around engaged Buddhism, his teachings around something called store consciousness or the seeds of consciousness, and his teachings on death. So that's, that's what I want to talk about. And starting with engaged Buddhism. Engaged Buddhism is connecting individual meditation practice to global ethics and social action. And I ha it's funny, I have a, a friend who I'm, um, I was a, on the board of directors with, uh, a rabbi, and he said to me a couple of years ago, it's, a, it's, a, it's an organization that's very involved in economic justice issues and we're in the street and we're protesting and we're doing various things, supporting workers and immigrants. And um, he said, I was the first Buddhist he met who wasn't just sitting on their cushion and, um, you know, meditating. And I said, no, there's a whole, there's a whole, whole slew of um, Buddhists who are practicing engaged Buddhism and um, find that it's incredibly important to not just sit on their cushion. And I also read a, a piece, uh, an interview, I think, with Tay. Tay means teacher, and Thich Nhat Hanh is often referred to as Tay. I, I, I saw an interview with him where he said, Engaged Buddhism is just Buddhism. If you're aware and paying attention to the suffering in the world, to the greed and the hatred that is run amok and the suffering that that causes, how can you not be engaged? And he was in um, 
he was 95 when he died, and he was a monk in Vietnam in the 60s when, in the midst of the Vietnam War. And he said, um, well, let's see. Let's see. He said, um, I, looked at, I looked at the kind of Buddhism around me, and I thought, this kind of Buddhism cannot do anything to help, help all the suffering of his people in Vietnam. I thought, this, can, this kind of Buddhism cannot do anything to help, but if I dig deeper, I will discover something. That kind of intention and conviction helped me to continue. It brought me deeper and helped me not to fall back into so many of the temptations that existed then. And that is why we invented what is called engaged Buddhism. It was born from our conviction that Buddhism must not be just theory. It must come from real experience and it must work to relieve suffering. And he got very, very involved in the anti-war efforts. And he wasn't, and he was reviled by both the North Vietnamese and the South Vietnamese because he wasn't taking a side. He was just anti-war, period. And he was exiled from Vietnam. And he only went back for the first time a few years ago. He went, he, he, he died in Vietnam. He was able to return home, return to his home temple in Way. And uh, several years ago, he had a stroke, I think it was in 2014, and he returned back soon after that and has lived there since then. But um, he became very active in anti-war work. In fact, Martin Luther King nominated him for the Nobel Peace Prize back in the 60s. And so this idea of getting off the cushion and, and meeting suffering and working to end injustice, working to end the causes of suffering is incredibly, incredibly important and really energizes my practice and, and gives me a foundation to, to move from. It's been incredibly important. And, and Thich Nhat Hanh is not the only, the only uh, Buddhist teacher who has done this. As I said, he, he said engaged Buddhism is simply Buddhism. He called it engaged Buddhism just to emphasize that aspect of getting off the cushion. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is a, uh, a Theravadan um, monk, he's also incredibly active in, in uh, social justice Donald Rothberg, who's a teacher up at uh, Spirit Rock, he's, he's, he's been involved in um, engaged Buddhism. He even has a book, which I have in the other room. I don't remember the name of it. Um, he's worked with Diana, Diana Winston, who's at UCLA. Um, Joanna Macy has been very involved in, in engaged Buddhism. She has something called the work that reconnects, reconnects us because we're so disconnected. Um, in Mahako Sananda was a monk in Cambodia who helped to um, heal um, a lot of the damage that was caused uh, during the Pol Pot regime, the Khmer Rouge. And um, so it, there's a history of this. And um, what Thich Nhat Hanh did is he created something called the 14 Engaged Buddhist Precepts. Many of you are familiar with the five precepts, which are part of, which are kind of enfolded into wise action, the sila, the, the um, ethical behavior portion of the Eightfold Path. And, why, and the, the five precepts are do not kill or intentionally take a life, um, don't take what's not offered, be careful with your sexuality, um, be, 
be wise with your speech and um, don't ingest anything that leads to heedlessness, which, which just blows up mindfulness. And so, but he has 14 engaged precepts and I just want to, I just pulled out a couple of them that I thought would be really important. The fourth one says, don't avoid contact with suffering. We have to really be willing to connect, to feel both our own suffering and to, to be with the suffering of the world. We want to, you know, uh, we want to run away from it. But um, Kuan Yin, the, um, the bodhisattva of uh, compassion, she hears the cries of the world. She doesn't turn away. She is ready to swoop in and help at the drop of a hat. That is, the word karuna in Pali, that means is translated as compassion, means quivering of the heart. We are touched by the suffering of the world. We're not overcome by it, but we're touched by it. So we have to be willing to touch both our own suffering and the suffering of the world. We can't turn away from it because that's, you know, we, some people, we, many people use spiritual practice to disconnect and dissociate and not feel. But that's, that's a spiritual bypass. That's not actually um, meeting, being with the discomfort. We have to, um, number, his sixth precept is do not maintain anger or hatred. It doesn't serve us to be angry or hate. Acknowledge that it may be present. There might be anger arising. There might be hatred arising, and I'll speak to this in a little bit, but we don't put it on. We don't act from it. We don't, we don't cultivate it. Steep those fires, or whatever the word is. Keep those fires burning. Um, the 11th precept. Do not live in a way that is harmful to humans and nature. He was very big on nature, recognizing that humans are part of the of the animal world, we're part of nature. We have this, this uh, idea, this ego, that separate. there's nature and then there's humans. Obviously that's not true, but we walk around the world as if it is. There's us and then there's everything else. And so to recognize that we're not any different. We're not any different. We're just a different species. Um, so don't we, we don't want to cause harm to humans or nature. Twelve. Do not kill or let others kill. Protect life and prevent war wherever we can. Really important to work towards this. And then 14, the last one, do not mistreat your body. You know, we have to take care of ourselves. It's A lot of us are outward facing, but we have to take care of ourselves. One of my favorite things lately, I follow uh, uh, someone on uh, Instagram, The Nap ministry which is there's a i think it's it's all about really um you know resting is an act of rebellion against this this society of busyness and productivity and more and bigger and better and to to take care of ourselves is really important so and he says um everything can begin with you you are the foundations of any change that will happen in your society Everything can begin with you. And he also, um, I want to also share something that he, he talked about um, around the, the five precepts, but I think they also apply to the 14 precepts of engaged Buddhism, but the five precepts that we're all, many of us are familiar with. And I often talk about the precepts as a way to make it safe 
for people to be around me because if I am committed to not causing harm and cultivating compassion and being wise with my speech and kind and not taking what's not offered and in fact being generous and being wise with my spirituality and not and being mindful then it's then it's okay for people to be around me because I probably won't cause harm and if I do cause harm I probably won't be really serious I might just be stupid um, and so he's Thich Nhat Hanh says the precepts are love itself to love is to understand, protect, and bring well-being to the object of our love. The practice of the precepts accomplishes this. We protect ourselves and we protect others. We protect ourselves and we protect others. It's, and he created what is um, known as the order of interbeing. Uh, a Buddhist order, and he created that in the 60s in Vietnam and um, ordained monks and nuns into the order of interbeing. And interbeing is this realization that we are all connected. You know, we live in an interbeing world. We live in this place of interdependence. I didn't, I'm drinking tea out of a cup. I didn't make the cup. I didn't make the tea. I didn't install the, the, the aqueduct to get waters, water out of the tap in the kitchen when I was making my tea. I didn't do any of that. If, if I was not connected to the rest of the world, I, I, we wouldn't be on Zoom, I tell you that much, because I'm, I'm not the person to create the interwebs. So um, left to my own devices, it's just me and um, maybe a bathrobe. I don't know. Um, I don't know, but so recognizing that we are so dependent on other people and in our minds, we're not. And so um, we live in this interbeing world. He says we inter are. And he, I want to read one of his poems. He was a, he was quite a poet. Um, and I got Gil read a few of his poems, and that's where um, I, I heard this one. And this one is called Interrelationship. You are me and I am you. Isn't it obvious that we inter-are? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you will not have to suffer. I support you. You support me. I am in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. I think that's beautiful. It's so simple, but it's like, I am here to support you. You are here to support me. So to have that as a foundation, you know, that's the idea of engaged Buddhism and interbeing. There's, there's a couple of ideas there, but they, they, they support each other. Really important, really important. The other, the other thing that I have found really powerful is this teaching around seeds of consciousness. And I talk about it a lot because I have found it so beneficial. And it um, store consciousness means that these, it's like these seeds are stored in consciousness. And it comes from uh, Yogacara, which is a Mahayana philosophy, which is primarily concerned with the uh, nature of experience. We have experiences. 
We are conditioned by them. We have developed habits of reacting, habits of taking care of ourselves, stories in our minds. And um, it's kind of our deep, deep, deep conditioning. It's our implicit biases. It's our implicit memories. It's this deep stuff inside of ourselves. And there are seeds of happiness or seeds of sorrow, pain, joy, anger. All the emotions are in there. Conceit, jealousy, um, everything. It's, it kind of colors our outlook on the world. It's that implicit bias. And the first time I heard about this is um, from a, um, a therapist of mine. She mentioned this and she mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh and then I looked it up and I read about it and, I, and, and it just is so meaningful to me because um, this stuff is in part of us. It's part of our conditioning. May not be aware of it consciously, but when the conditions are right... As with seeds that we plant in the ground, when there's enough sun, when there's enough water, when conditions are right, the seeds blossom and bloom. And we can't help what arises at the moment. It's based on what the input is. What is the condition? You know, I hear a song and it triggers a memory of, you know, 40 years ago. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's some nostalgia, maybe it's some joy, maybe it's some grief. Maybe it was a song that was our song to some, uh, with some person who's passed away, and so this momentary feeling of grief arises. Or anger, some other memory is triggered. So that is, the, the seeds of consciousness are there this, in the store consciousness, and they blossom. And the reason I found this so important is because recognizing that they're there and they're triggered, I can't help it. It's not our fault. It's not my fault. It's not your fault. It just happens. It's a spontaneous arising. So I was able, so we're able to release shame. We can release guilt. We can release all those things. Those, those seeds are not our fault. The blossoming is not our fault. It's what we do with it when they do show up. That's where we have some agency. So there's this arising of, of jealousy. Somebody tells me, that I, this is the story that I always think of, my, my friend doing something that I'm really excited for her. It's a really exciting thing she was doing. And all of a sudden, this jealousy showed up. It's not anything I want to do. I don't know why. And I immediately went into you shouldn't feel jealousy. Why are you feeling jealousy? You don't want to do that. You're, you're, you know too much to be jealous. Jealousy is not a helpful thing. So why are you jealous? So then it gets into this whole story and then this berating and, and blah, blah, blah. Until I recognize it's like, oh, I didn't choose to be jealous. I didn't wake up today and go, I want to be jealous because it feels so damn good to be jealous. No, I, it, it arose because of the conditions, because of some old, old thinking, old ways. I mean, I was, I was always wanting what I didn't have when I was a kid. I didn't have a lot, so I wanted, I wanted more. And so it's old stuff, but I re when I recognize it, it's like, oh, look, there's jealousy. Okay. And a lot of times when we can recognize it without becoming so attached to it, there's an ease and a freedom there because we're not putting it on. Anger arises. Where is it in your body? Anger for me sits in my chest. I'm going like this. You can't see. Anger sits right here. 
and 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 others other things sit in my gut when I'm when I'm um, feeling on the outside looking in that's in my gut and so I begin to recognize where these emotions show up and where they reside and then we can tend to them with kindness with with gentleness so that I think is what is really important about this teaching of seed conscious store consciousness and the seeds of consciousness it's they're there they're going to show up. It's how we work with them when they do. There's a freedom. There's a tremendous freedom there. And then the last piece that is, uh, has been so powerful for me with, uh, from Thich Nhat Hanh is um, the teaching around death. He, I, um, when I did chaplaincy training, gosh, it's been like 12 years, 11 years ago, uh, I read some stuff by him about death and dying, and they have, it's been so comforting to me. It's been so comforting to people I've been with. I've read his stuff over and over and over again to people who were um, in their last days and last hours, and I could tell there was a difference. And the, you know, I, a lot of folks, wrote a lot of things because he just died people were pulling up a lot of his poems about death and dying and there's I'll, I'll put this in the chat as well there um plum village which um is the uh monastery or the place he founded in france after he was exiled from vietnam um has a website and all week they've been um live streaming the ceremonies um, around his death and the memorials and yesterday they they um, anyway all week they they've been broadcasting this but there's also a resource page with a lot of links to a lot of his talks even just short talks on death and dying and what it means and um, it's really beautiful it's a particular lens to look at death and dying um, that may be different from what you're raised with, may be different from what you believe, but what I find very comforting, and it was really, as I was reflecting on Thich Nhat Hanh this week, his teachings really kind of dropped even deeper into my gut, and I want to read the one thing that I just, in fact, it was this, this book, Journeying to the East, which is Conversations on Aging and Dying, that I got this from, and um, this is the piece that I have found really powerful, our lives are like waves in the ocean. The wave might be scared if she conceives of herself as having a beginning and an end, of going up and then going down. But if the wave recognizes that she is water, not only is she a wave, but she is also water. In that moment, when she recognizes herself as water, there is no fear left. Being water, you are no longer afraid of going back, going down into the all. There is no beginning, no end. There is no up and no down for the water. It's this, for me, it's this beautiful idea that, you know, there is, there is birth, but when there's birth, there's death. It's just this continuity of, experience in whatever form it takes it's like there's water and then there's the wave and then there's water again and the one little clip I watched the other day was on um, 
he was talking about uh, a flame. When you light a match, it's like you don't say that the the flame was born, and then when you you blow the match out, the flame died. Or a cloud forms when it dissipates, when it's blown away, and and it's gone. You don't say that the cloud died. It just moves into a different a different. Um, the energy moves into a different uh, formation. And that was his teaching around this idea of birth and death. And I found that comforting. And I just, in fact, I just finished this afternoon. I just finished reading Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, a book by a woman named Caitlin Doughty, D-O-U-G-H-T-Y, who has the YouTube series Ask a Mortician. She's a mortician. And uh, really, really, really excellent book. Really, um, her stuff is really, really excellent. And she kind of, um, you know, we have been in our society in the West, we're so disconnected from death. It's hidden away. And we have no idea, we have no intimacy with that idea of dying or death. And um, so it, it's a challenging concept for so many of us. And I really like how he talks about it so much and kind of reconnects us with the reality that there's, there's, it's just death. I know, it's, that's a, like, what do you mean it's just death? But if you didn't want to die, you shouldn't have been born. That's what I always tell people. That's what I always tell people. But um, let me see if there's just one other thing I wanted to say. Oh yeah. Um, so that was the that was the other thing that impacted me really greatly was um, this uh, his teachings around death. Um, and then one other thing that I got out of Gill's talk the other day was how uh, Gill highlighted how um, what am I going to say how. Thich Nhat Hanh was so committed, and I, you know, it just came to me so committed to living with an undefended heart. Not that he ever used that language, but that he had, he was always, always, always committed to compassion and committed to kindness and committed to love. And there's one poem that's really, really powerful. His poems are really short, but he can put so much into them. And this one is called um, For Warmth. And he said that this was written after he'd heard about the bombing of Ben Trey, a town in, um, I think it was in North Vietnam or somewhere in Vietnam. And the, com the comment was made by an American military man that we had to destroy the town in order to save it. I hold my face in my two hands. No, I am not crying. I hold my face in my two hands to keep the loneliness warm. Two hands protecting, two hands nourishing, two hands preventing my soul from leaving me in anger. Find there's so much compassion in those words. I'm tending to myself. 
and tending to the anger that's present, tending to the suffering. Really powerful. And so I'm so grateful that he was, um, he walked this planet. So grateful he walked this earth. I'm so grateful that he wrote and taught as long as he did. And there's so much richness in, in what he offers. And so thank you for uh, letting me share. Um, and I hope it has been of some benefit. Thank you for visiting Undefended Dharma. These teachings are freely offered. However, if you would like to make a donation to help support the technology that makes these podcasts possible, please visit marystancavage.org backslash support. Thank you.